0: Welcome to this Legal Talk Network podcast as Lex Moondy presents In-House Legal, the show about everything in-house. Hot topics, legal trends, everything important to corporate counsel.
1: Welcome to In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm your host, Tim Corcoran, Senior Consultant with Altman Weill. At Altman While, we provide management consulting services exclusively to legal organizations, As an expert in law firms and corporate counsel relationships, I'm very pleased to partner with Lex Mundi and host In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. Each month, Lex Mundi presents In-House Legal, focusing on you and what's important to you as in-house counsel. We take you inside the corporate legal department. Today's topic is learning to cope with the wave of new employment laws and regulations. Joining us today is John Veering with Armstrong Teasdale, Lex Mundi's member firm for Missouri. John is a partner at the firm and leads the Employment and Labor Practice Group in the Kansas City office. His practice is primarily in the areas of employment and civil litigation, including employment discrimination, wrongful discharge, wage and hour, OSHA, non compete litigation, and employment counseling. Welcome to the show, John. Glad to be part of the show. Well, also joining us today is Kim Kement with Tompkins Industries Incorporated, a global engineering and manufacturing group for industrial, automotive, and building products markets across North America, Europe, Asia, and the rest of the world. Kim represents the Tompkins companies before all federal and state agencies, including the EEOC, the DOL, the OFCCP, NLRB, and OSHA, and she also provides extensive training in employment law for the Tompkins companies. Welcome to the show, Kim.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: So today we're talking about new employment laws and regulations and what in-house counsel should know now and in the future. And as we're all well aware, there have been significant numbers of new employment and labor, legislative and regulatory initiatives enacted since President Obama took office. So let's explore a few of these. Now we're all familiar with the Americans with Disabilities Acts. So let's talk about, can you provide us with a quick overview of the new ADA amendments and how they impact in-house counsel? John, let's start with you.
3: Yes, these amendments and the EEOC's proposed regulations interpreting them have substantially expanded the number of employees that are considered to be disabled. The EEOC has done away with the case-by-case analysis we've been using in the past, and for many types of impairments such as diabetes, epilepsy, uh, the EEOC considers those automatically uh, disabilities. Mitigating measures are out the window. So, for example, the diabetic whose condition is completely controlled by insulin is now considered to be disabled. A person who has cancer that's in remission is now considered disabled. The definition of regarded as disabled has been expanded. So, if the employer takes adverse action against an employee or an applicant because the employer believes they have some kind of impairment that's not transitory, then there's a violation of the ADA. It's a bit of an overstatement to say that everybody is now considered disabled, but not much of an overstatement. And the reason I say that is the EEOC proposed regulations give examples of what is not a disability, and their examples include the common cold, common influenza, Sprain, joint, seasonal allergies. So the bottom line is it doesn't take much to be disabled. Kim, how do in-house counsel deal with the fact that you now have many more disabled employees than before?
2: Well, um, several things um, that are important to do, um, and the first one is fairly obvious, is you want to make sure that all your HR managers and professionals are recently trained on the new ADA requirements. It's also important to review and revise your ADA policies and forms to eliminate any provisions that might be deemed inconsistent with the new laws. Um, Another thing that employers should do uh, that based on the expanded definition of a disability as you've just described, many more people are going to be considered disabled. And previously in the past, we've been able to win um, cases uh, asserting that the plaintiff was not disabled and the case was dismissed that defense is not going to be available um, very much anymore. So, a protected person under the ADA is a qualified person who uh, can perform the essential functions of the position desired or held with or without a reasonable accommodation. It's very important to update your job descriptions and assure that all essential functions are included. That's the starting point for determining whether the person is qualified for the job. Frequently, um, employers have problems uh, with attendance when people are disabled and I always recommend that um, attendance be listed as an essential function of any position on the job description. And not only um, do I recommend that we have a statement that attendance is an essential function of the position, but also include an uh, expansive explanation of what attendance is required such as statements that the person must have regular, reliable, consistent, and predictable attendance, and also the ability to work shifts or regular hours over time and weekends. We also want to be prepared to win ADA claims on the merits of legitimate, non-discriminatory reasons for any negative action that may be taken against the disabled person. Disabled people can be held to the same performance and conduct standards as non-disabled, So as always, documentation of performance and conduct issues is going to be very, very important. We want to be able to show that if we took adverse treatment against a disabled person, either a termination or um, a warning, um, that the disabled person received similar treatment to a person with no known disabilities or medical conditions for similar poor performance or for misconduct.
3: I agree with everything Kim said, and I also think the interactive process is now more important to show that you tried to work with the person, and that's all I have to add.
0: Excellent.
1: Well, thank you. Well, the next topic on everyone's mind these days is health care reform. This is a massive bill, but what are the key aspects of interest for in-house counsel? Kim, let's turn to you first.
2: Well, one of the key aspects is the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. This amends the FLSA and provides break time for nursing mothers. This new statute requires that employers with 50 or more employees and who are subject to the FLSA must provide a private space other than a restroom to express breast milk for infants. Um, a private room could be something simply as um, an office with a door that, where the blinds close or a conference, a private conference room where you can close some curtains and lock the door. This law is not site specific. Um, it's not the employers are going to be required to comply if they have 50 or more employees anywhere, not just 50 or more employees at a site. Unfortunately, the new law is a little vague and it does not state the number or length of breaks that are required. Um, There are some exceptions for uh, having the law apply to employers with 50 employees if the law would impose an undue hardship or significant difficulty or expense in complying and providing um, a place to express breast milk. Infant means a baby up to one years old, and the law clearly also states that these breaks are unpaid unless state law requires paid breaks, then the more favorable prov- provision for the employee would apply. So it's going to be important for all employers to check their state laws when complying with this new law.
1: And, John, how about some uh, items from your perspective?
2: Well,
3: there, buried in this new health care law is a private cause of action for whistleblowers. So if an employer retaliates against an employee for providing information either to the employer or to the federal government or to a state attorney general, which information the employee reasonably believes to be a violation of the act, uh, that's whistleblowing. Second, if the employer retaliates against the employee for participating in an investigation or because the employee objects to something, uh, participating in in an activity that the employee thinks is illegal, that would be whistleblowing. So, To give a couple of examples, an employee complains, I was denied coverage because of a pre-existing condition. An employee complains, I was discriminated against because I received health care insurance subsidy. That employee can go down to OSHA, file a claim. OSHA investigates. Even if OSHA finds there's absolutely no merit to the claim, the employee can go into federal court, get a jury, and if the employee can recover uh, from the jury, the jury can award uh, back pay, interest. There can be injunctive relief awarded, reinstatement, damages for mental pain and suffering, attorney's fees, and cost. And the burden of proof is very favorable to the employee, who only has to show uh, some evidence that uh, the protected activity was a contributing factor in the uh, decision to terminate. And the employer then has to prove by clear and convincing evidence that it would have made the decision anyway. So, the lesson for in-house counsel is, if you've got some employee that might be considered a whistleblower under this Health Care Act, be very careful and make sure you have good documentation uh, before you terminate the employee or you're looking for a lot of trouble in, in court.
1: Well, it sounds like uh, being careful and having documentation is good advice uh, for all that we're talking about today. Let's move on to the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act and why it is so important. John, let's turn back to you.
3: This act uh, dramatically extends the time period for filing a charge of compensation or pay discrimination with the EEOC. And this law applies both to Title VII as well as age and disability discrimination claims. Under prior law, the employee typically had 300 days to file their EEOC charge after the discriminatory decision. But under the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, the employee has... 300 days from the time they are affected by the decision. And every time the employee receives a paycheck, it starts the time for filing a charge again. So, for example, if Kim and I worked for the ABC company, and 15 years ago, I received a 10% increase, and Kim only received a 5% increase, and every year thereafter, we received, you know, the same percentage increases and Kim felt that was because of sex discrimination if she got a paycheck on May 31 she would have 300 of 2010 she'd have 300 days from that date to file a charge of discrimination and she can only go back and recover damages for 2 years but she could go back 15 or 20 years Kim in a circumstance with the the statute of limitations being expanded what can in-house counsel
2: do to protect their company? Well, there's a n- number of things um, in-house counsel can do. Uh, one of the first things you want to do is, because so much time can pass um, between um, an alleged discriminatory act and when a claim can be brought, we often find that witnesses are gone. We have new managers or even change in compensation systems and policies. So each company should review their record retention policy and decide if they want to have an open-ended or indefinite record retention policy or if they want to destroy records in the normal course of their business under their standard record retention policy. And a lot of that's going to depend on the the quality of the records uh, that each company keeps and whether the documentary evidence is is helpful or unhelpful. Another thing um, employers should do is develop specific objective criteria for paid decisions and train managers how to use them. Those criteria should be applied consistently, and that's especially important if you have employees in the same job groups, work units, with the same managers or same job titles or similar job duties. Be sure to document reasons for your paid decisions, and also it's important to remember that Pay differentials could even start at the time of hire if you're hiring two new employees with the same job titles and same um, job duties. So, if you're paying them different wage rates, you w- might want to make um, and document your decision based on whether one employee negotiated for more money, one had more experience, one had a college degree, whatever the legitimate reason is. And while people remain employed, you want to do effective and meaningful evaluations. Um, Another step that an employer can take is that um, when you make a compensation decision, you might want to have a second level of review by another unrelated manager or by the HR department so supervisors and managers don't have unfettered discretion to make compensation decisions. And you want to evaluate all of your compensation decisions with a critical eye, much like what you would do when you are doing a second review for an employee who is being disciplined or terminated. It just gives a a second opinion and another objective look at the facts. Um, Some things employers can do is either place a legend on a pay stub that if you have any questions or concern about your pay, notify the HR department before you receive your next paycheck or perhaps consider having a paycheck complaint procedure with quick deadlines for complaining. This will give the employer the opportunity to resolve any problems quickly and internally if they exist, and if the employee waits a long time to make a complaint, you may be able to challenge their credibility when you get to court if they wait years to complain. A final step employers can take are to conduct periodic self-audits to identify any unexplained pay discrepancies based on gender, race, ethnicity, and other protected classes, but be sure that if you conduct such an audit that you do so under attorney-client privilege.
1: Well, this is fantastic information and some very, very helpful uh, checklists for in-house counsel to work with. Well, let's take a quick break. We'll return with more about new employment laws and how they affect in-house counsel momentarily.
0: Where do you turn when you face legal issues halfway around the world? Lex Mundi, the world's leading association of independent law firms. Lex Mundi's worldwide network of 160 premier law firms in more than 100 countries provides the local market knowledge and on the ground experience you can trust as your business and legal needs transcend borders. Regionally, nationally, and around the world, Lex Mundi offers unlimited solutions to help you meet the challenges of doing business globally. To locate a Lex Mundi member firm, visit www.lexmundy.com. That's L E X. Mundi.com. In-House Legal from Lex Mundi takes you inside the corporate legal department. Get the inside story on the latest issues, legal trends, and more.
1: Welcome back to In-House Legal presented by Lex Mundi. I'm your host, Tim Corcoran. Today we're discussing the wave of new employment laws and regulations with John Veering and Kim Kement. What are some of the most significant state employment law issues, and what are some best practices for in-house counsel? Kim, you have significant experience managing employees in different states across the country, so let's start with you.
2: There are a myriad of state wage and hour issues that um, all employers need to be aware of, especially if they're multi-state employers. The hottest topic currently for state wage and hour issues are that many states required either paid or unpaid rest periods or possibly meal periods based on the length of time employees work. These these are the type of violations that often impact many employees. They're attractive cases for plaintiff's lawyers. They're expensive to defend, often because they're document intensive. These violations can result in payments or penalties due both to affected employees or the state and Payments or penalties may not be just a single payment but may, single payment or penalty, but can be compounded. There are often multiple layers of penalties. And if the employer loses the case, the employer often is required to play, pay the plaintiff's attorney's fees. So these are very, very expensive ca- types of cases to have to defend, and all employers should be sure that they are aware of meal and break periods required by their states and are complying with those requirements. Other... Wage and hour issues at the state level that employers should be aware of is that many states have a definition of wages and severance pay is included in that definition. When an employee terminates an employment, uh, final wages are often due by a specific deadline. We want to ensure that if we've promised to pay severance pay to an employee, that that promise is conditioned upon the payment of a signed and effective release of employment claims or the employee can bring a wage claim for severance pay and not be required to sign a release. Another issue that employers need to be aware of are that final wages and earned and unused vacation um, are due when the employee terminates. And many state wage laws define vacation as wages. So these payments are due by various deadlines, and the deadlines can be based on the type of termination, whether voluntary or involuntary, Payments can be due as early as on the separation date or the next pay period following separation. Some states also have uh, laws regarding what is a legal workday. There may be a limit on the number of hours employees may work on any given day. For example, there's one state where employees may not work more than 10 hours per day or the employer is required to pay overtime for that day. Even if the employees. Hours worked in the work week do not exceed 40. Some states have a mandatory rest day where employees may only work six out of seven days a week. And the final issue that um, employers need to be aware of is make sure that the employer is not making deductions from an employee's pay uh, when he leaves the company. If the employee has promised to reimburse the company for, for example, recruiting fees or moving expenses or the, the employee otherwise owes the company money. In just about every state, written permission is required to deduct payments from an employee's final wages. All of these types of issues can lead to a complaint by the employee to a state agency. The state will come in and audit that particular issue for that employee. They can expand their audit to similar issues for other employees or actually come in and audit any wage and hour issues. These are time-consuming, disruptive, and possibly expensive audits to defend.
3: If I could just follow up uh, on some of those points, I I agree with what Kim said, and especially on deductions, I think it's a good practice to have, number one, let the employees know in advance what the deductions are going to be from their pay and have them agree to them in writing. Make sure you know the state law, because under some states' laws, only certain types of deductions are allowed, even with the employee's permission. If you have, uh, for example, training costs that are by agreement going to be deducted, make sure you're not reducing the employee's pay below the uh, the minimum wage under either federal or state law, because that's going to be a problem in most states. I think if there, and some of these some state laws are ambiguous, and it's always my recommendation that if it's ambiguous as to whether or not you owe the money pay the employee, give the employee the benefit of the doubt, because if you don't, an employee who feels they've been cheated on their final paycheck is likely to go to a, a lawyer, and you face either the uh, class action lawsuit Kim was talking about, or maybe the lawyer doesn't find merit to that claim, but asserts a claim for discrimination of some sort, Um Another thing that I think employers should keep in mind if they don't uh pay the employee the wages that are due on a final paycheck if that employee has a non-compete agreement a court might conclude that the employer breached the agreement by not paying the employee what is due therefore the non-compete agreement was no longer valid. One bit of good news for employers from the state law standpoint is that not only is there a federal sort of computer tampering statute, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, but many states have their own um, computer tampering statutes. Some are civil, some are criminal. And you need to be careful when employees are leaving that if they're stealing data or taking information, that uh, there are remedies that can be pursued that are statutory to allow you to uh, recover damages. For theft of trade secret type information and sometimes to recover your attorney's fees and the expenses of uh, computer reconstruction of data and programs that might be erased by an employee who's upset because he was terminated.
1: Well, this is very helpful. John and Kim, we've touched on legislation primarily that has occurred in 2010. So what's on the horizon? What, what regulatory changes should in-house counsel expect to see in the near future? Let's get a quick overview. John, how about you first?
3: I'm going to start with the National Labor Relations Board. I think we can expect some dramatic changes. Over the last couple of years, the board has had one Democrat and one Republican member, so they've been deadlocked. And on cases they couldn't agree upon, they've just been left hanging, waiting for a decision. So, now you have more than 200 pending cases, and the board now consists of three Democrats and one Republican, and the Republican's term expires in August of this year. So, gazing into my crystal ball, I'm going to make these predictions. I believe non-employees' rights to access of an employer's property for union organizing activity is going to be expanded. I believe there's going to be some rulemaking to make it easier for unions to organize, perhaps even administratively adopting some provisions of the Employee Free Choice Act that the unions have been enabled to get passed in Congress. I believe employers are likely to lose their ability to ban the use of the employer's email system for union organizing. I expect the definition of supervisors to narrow... And I believe the new board will extend so-called wine garden rights to give non-union employees the right to request that a co-worker accompany the employee to an investigative interview if the employee reasonably believes that the interview could result in discipline. Kim, what do you see on the horizon?
2: Well, I'm seeing increased staffing and funding of government um, enforcement agencies, uh, particular, particularly those who handle discrimination complaints. For example, um, focusing on the EEOC for a minute, last year in 2009, their budget was $14 million. In 2010, that budget has been increased for to $23 million. This, these increased budgets mean that the agencies have more staff they're spending more try- time increasing their staff, and they're increasing their enforcement activities. Um, I've also seen recently that when, a, that when a charge of discrimination is filed, we are getting overreaching requests for records. For example, um, someone might make a complaint for harassment that concerned simply one comment that was addressed properly by the employer, and um, that was kind of the end of the matter. Um We have received requests for uh, termination information for all employees at that facility with their date of termination, reason for termination, and their uh, gender, race, or national origin. And these things have nothing to do with the original complaint. There's a couple of ways you can handle those overreaching requests for information. You can just respond to the original charge and ignore the request for additional irrelevant information that does have uh, the possibility of irritating the EEOC and possibly making you subject to a subpoena or you can give the EEOC some of the information that they have requested, analyzing it, making sure that it's not damaging um, to to the complaint or could lead to um, complaints not related to the initial complaint. Or you can give the EEOC all of the information they're requesting that's irrelevant But then you have the risk of having them evaluate that and creating um, additional claims for the company. We're also seeing aggressive use of um, the enforcement uh, of subpoena power of the EEOC in court. They're taking employers to court and challenging the fact that they did not get requested records. Um, And even under a subpoena, the requests for records are very broad um, the issue might involve one employee, but the EEOC will seek information for all employees at that facility. The issue may involve one facility, but they're trying to subpoena records at all your facilities nationwide, and they're asking for a lot of information, which most lawyers would consider irrelevant to the charge or complaint they're dealing with. The EEOC is also focusing on investigating and litigating systemic claims of discrimination and are filing class actions. And during the Obama administration, um, from the time he has taken office up through February of this year, uh, 63 class actions have been filed against employers. Kim, I think
3: that's all great advice. And I've been doing uh, trying to give the EEOC something and and maybe citing a case or two to them that shows what they're asking for is overbroad or irrelevant in the hopes that they'll be satisfied with something and won't seek it uh, and enforcement of the subpoena in court because that's always a big and expensive hassle and
2: yes I found that usually works um, especially if it's combined with a well-written position statement uh, defending the original charge and having the documentation to back up that defense.
1: Well that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank our guest John Veering with Armstrong Teasdale in Missouri and Kim Kiment with Tompkins Industries. we would like to remind you that the Lex Mundi website is open to all of our listeners with literally hundreds of resources for in-house counsel. You can find Lex Mundi online at lexmundi.com or contact me, Tim Corcoran, at altmanwilecom slash Corcoran. Remember, you can check out all of our shows at legaltalknetwork.com, or you can also subscribe to this program in iTunes. Thanks for listening today to In-House Legal from Lex Mundi on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Tim Corcoran from Altman and I hope to talk with you again.
0: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to In House Legal from Lex Mundi join us again next time for more hot topics for the in-house lawyer on legal talk network